0: Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine
1: the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready
0: to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin
1: and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. What was once a secret and very much unknown group of elite U.S. military soldiers has now become a virtual household name, inspiring countless books, news stories, and even movies. While all of you have certainly heard of Navy SEALs, very few of you have probably actually met one. They're a small, select, and rare group. Even rarer are the handful of Navy SEALs who have actually gone on to become physicians. Today's guest is one of these few. To become a U.S. Navy SEAL requires one to pass one of, if not the, most difficult, grueling and selective training processes in the world. This includes a crucible called Hell Week, where recruits face six torturous days of physical tests, no sleep, freezing cold water, hazardous elements, and for those who make it through, watching each day as most of your fellow classmates ultimately quit the process. The stresses and physiologic impacts to the body are very real leaving many graduates exhibiting the same signs and symptoms seen in POWs or even victims of torture. It's what we're going to talk about today, and who better to explore this with us than a physician who actually went through it himself. Today, Dr. Robert Adams is a family physician with the UNC Health System. He entered medical school after serving as an elite Navy SEAL for 12 years. His recently published book, Six Days of the Impossible, is the first ever exploration of this process from a medical perspective. It's an unbelievably fascinating story for part one of our conversation with Bob. Part two is just the result of all the regrets we had for the questions and topics we didn't get to in that first conversation. So a couple weeks later, we asked Bob to come back for another round. After this episode, we'll continue the journey in part two with Bob's time as a command surgeon for the Army's elite Delta Force and his experiences as an Army physician in post-invasion Iraq. Get ready for a pretty exciting ride. With that said, let's get started. Bob, welcome to the show. We have been super excited about having you on today, and really appreciate the time.
0: Good morning. I'm delighted to be here.
1: So, Bob, just you have a fascinating history, and that's why we invited you on. You have a new book that just came out. Just take us through your background really quick. Uh, when did you decide that the seals was something you wanted to pursue, and then how did that lead to actually becoming a physician today?
0: Well, in 1967, Reader's Digest published an article announcing the existence of the Navy SEALs. It had been a secret organization since 1962. I was a junior in high school at the time, and I said, oh, my goodness, I finally found a goal in life. That's where uh, I, I started my plan, went to my father, who's a Naval Academy graduate, and said, how do I get into the Naval Academy? If I'm going to be a SEAL, I might as well be an officer. And... Uh, the rest is history. I ended up going to the Naval Academy uh, where they had never even heard of SEALs by the time I got there, spent four years there, went to Navy, uh, did not get an opportunity to, to, to choose SEAL training directly from the Academy. There were only five slots available and they're handed out by class rank and mine wasn't high enough to grab one of those first five. So I ended up on a destroyer in San Francisco, spent a year and a half there, applied to, to, for SEAL training from the fleet was accepted and went through SEAL training in San Diego, Coronado, uh, right after that. Spent 12 years in the SEAL teams and um, switched to the Army to go to medical school. And I'm often asked, why did you switch? My father's Naval Academy and my grandfather was superintendent of the Naval Academy and a three-star Admiral. Mm. Uh, my great-granddad was a West Point graduate, however, and my great-great-granddad was commissioned by Lincoln in the Battle of uh, Gettysburg. Uh, wow. So I've got a long career history, but interestingly, I. I uh, but you didn't feel to... any
1: family pressure, did you?
0: No pressure at all. <laughs> <laughs> there is a long history of um, military service, but and, and academy service. But when I applied to the army and the navy for uh, a scholarship, the navy offered me a three-year scholarship. The army offered me a four. And I went, put on my dress uniform, I just made commander in the Navy, went up there and said, hey, I'm going to med school, make me a Navy doctor. And they said, nah, you don't qualify. So I I said, Mm -hmm. all right, sir, I hope we serve together one time in the future, but when we do, I'll be in a different uniform. I had two children at the time, and med school's expensive. So ended up, uh, did my residency in Washington State, went to uh, Fort Bragg for my first assignment, and ended up arranging to stay there most of my career minus a uh, tour in Iraq.
2: Yeah. Did you, um, did you take any heat for switching over from your buddies? Did they uh, uh, kid you about the fact that you switched over to army or?
0: Oh, of course. Or, or uh, your
2: family for that matter.
0: <laughs> well, family is an interesting piece of the pie. When I decided to go take the army scholarship, I uh, went to see my grandfather, the three-star admiral mm-hmm. and said, granddad, I just need to let you know, as the patriarch of the clan, that I'm going to accept an Army scholarship. His response to me was, you do remember, grandson, that my father and my wife's father were classmates at West Point. Oh, there you so go. You're, oh, just, you're just bringing the family full circle.
1: So there but, we go. Now, was this the same grandfather who actually put up a little resistance for the formation of the SEALs to begin with?
0: Exactly. Vice Admiral William Smedberg was— uh, Chief of Naval, Chief of Naval Personnel, when Admiral Arleigh Burke was the CNO, uh, Chief of Naval Operations, and that's 1960, when the Navy first started trying to decide if it could field a SEAL team at Eisenhower's request, and he was adamantly opposed to the idea, didn't want uh, the Navy to do special operations, said, give it to the Army, they already have Green Beret. So... Granddad worked his hardest, but uh, bless Admiral Burke's heart, uh, he won out. And in 1962, Kennedy signed the authorization for the Navy to have a SEAL
1: team. Hmm. So let's take a couple steps back here. We're going to get into your training, particularly Huttle Week. I mean, that's what your book was about, and it's interesting because it's from the perspective of a physician looking back now. And when you and and your other You know, classmates at that point were going through this training. They push you to an extreme level that's really seen in no other area of society and maybe a few militaries around the world. And it's an interesting book, but when you look back at starting, uh, you're right out of the Naval Academy. This is towards the tail end of Vietnam. It's a difficult time for our country. And you have your grandfather who wasn't really too thrilled about the idea of having this program in the military. There's a lot of reasons not to do this. What was the driving force, most of all, at that age and that time, to take up such an incredible challenge?
0: Well, in your youth, you don't make logical decisions as much as you make emotional decisions, right. and I had always been a uh, snorkeling fanatic. I would, I enjoyed the water. I'd been stationed uh, in, with my dad to Pensacola, Florida, and I knew sailing, and I and I was a uh, routinely out there spear fishing for for food and when an opportunity to go to a job that involved uh swimming and running and blowing things up it just it was an emotional <laughs> oh my goodness they're really going to pay me to do this so
1: that,
0: <laughs> that's where i went
2: there we go so um was there uh, i mean obviously the the whole um, nature of the seals is some secrecy and secrecy about the training and everything like that. Um, did you, were you able to get some idea of what the training was going to be? Or if not, how could you possibly prepare for what you were heading towards? Um, as you were actually saying, okay, I've been accepted now, or at least I've been accepted into training. Now I have to move forward.
0: That's a great question. There was very little, if any information available to me, uh, that would describe what I was going to go through. That's one of the reasons I wrote this book, Six Days of Impossible. It defines what I discovered, that six days without sleep, soaking wet, freezing cold, the physical and psychological uh, challenges. When I explained it to most people, they say, that's impossible. How can you do that? And I didn't know that. Uh, So you would Hmm. think the failure rate would have been higher back then than it is now. but But the fact remains that about 20 to 25% of everybody that goes through SEAL training will graduate. And that's still true today. And, wow. and there's a ton of information out there now uh, at YouTube and on TV that lets you know what you're up against. There wasn't back then.
2: Right. I mean, there are even people who market Navy SEAL training as, as you know, for, la- for non- um, uh, military people. It's it's a fitness uh, fad. Although I'm sure it's nothing like the real training. It's kind of interesting that that's become a almost a, a commercial hook on it.
0: No, it has. And it's, um, it's undisputably, the most difficult military training in any military in the world. And yeah. so, uh, one of the interesting discoveries uh, in the SEAL training unit is that some men apply to this training just to see if they can do it. Mm-hmm. They don't really have an avocation to want to be uh, a trained operative in the military. They just want to see if they can do it. And and I mentioned this in the book. Every now and then, somebody will go through the entire year and a half of training, get to the end and go, there, I did it. I don't want to do this anymore. Wow. And they'll, wow. ask, they'll, they'll ask to be released,
1: and they go home. Wow.
2: How about that?
1: I remember huh. seeing that in the book. I just That just blows my mind after everything yeah. that you described, right. actually make it that far. It's just, yeah. well, Bob, you know, in a short podcast here today, we really cannot even begin to scratch the surface of this, but let's give it our best shot here. I mean, try to give us a, an idea of what a day is like in hell week, maybe even a day towards the end. I mean, what, what are you going through? What, what is a, the layout of the day? What are the activities? Give us give us the best idea here for people who haven't seen any of the videos or movies or documentaries.
0: Well, I when I when I started the book's story, I had to tell about the eleven men that went through it. But then I start day one, day two, three, four, five, and six. And each chapter starts with so many hours without sleep, 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours without sleep. And that's something that people who have never been through it have a hard time comprehending. But it begins at midnight on a Sunday night, and the world that you are in, in the barracks, explodes with uh, flashbang grenades, automatic weapons firing, brass uh, shells bouncing all around, screaming, yelling, fire hoses going off outside. And that is designed to scare the snot out of you it works really well uh, we're all sitting there in bed knowing it's coming and then it it off it goes and we know it's not going to end for six more days but it uh it's it's designed to push you to uh physical and emotional limits that nobody's ever experienced before so instructors will change on you every eight hours during that 24-hour period each day being a you know one more step in a, in a very long, almost incomprehensible process. Nobody's ever done this. That's done anything like it before, but you're kept freezing cold. Ours was a winter class, but even in San Diego, summer classes, the water there is, is in the fifties and sixties. So it's always cold, but, but they keep you wet and they keep you moving. And we run over 200 miles during that week with boats Hmm. on our heads. Uh, we swim long distances. We running obstacle courses and anything that the instructors can do to uh, push you and keep you both awake and functional. The, uh, we actually spend an, an entire day and a half during that week in the famous mud flats uh, just north of Tijuana, where we are totally covered with muck and mud and stink, <laughs> and uh, it's it's that's designed to keep you. Uh, well, not to keep you, but to uh, to push you past a natural uh, aversion to being wet and
1: dirty. so and these instructors are seals themselves, right?
0: oh, yes, and and that's a that's a special assignment to be a to be a, selected as a Navy seal instructor because they have that unique responsibility of picking men that they're willing to go into combat with, and as an officer, and I, I was constantly aware. That the enlisted instructors and all the instructors are enlisted uh, are watching me to decide whether they'd be willing to follow me into combat. Hmm. That was a tremendous responsibility.
2: Sure. Added pressure there. What is the – I mean uh, the training obviously, the the whole year training is to teach you the skills and the teamwork and everything – what do you feel the real, real point of Hell Week is? Is it to separate the people who can do it? Is to is it to give you an experience that's so awful that hopefully there'll never be such an awful experience again? Um, are there lessons that you... Do you have a chance to debrief afterwards and say, well, this is what I really learned about myself, or is it all internalized?
0: No, Hell Week has a stated, absolute intent, which is to push your body and your mind to the point where you cannot go on. It is to find that line, which is defined as impossible, and step over it. And every book that's ever been written by a Navy SEAL talks about their Hell Week, talks about the people they lost during Hell Week. And it's interesting that almost everybody, but not everybody, gets to the point where they're body says I can't do this and they're waiting for it and they're watching for it as instructors and once you get to the point where the arms don't work anymore you're dropped down for 50 push-ups and you can't do them they just won't work that's when all the instructors jump on you and yell at you scream at you throw sand at you try to push your adrenaline levels to higher levels of fear or excitement and make you step over that line that we've all learned from prior life experiences is there. And once you step over that line, impossible is no longer impossible. You learn that you can define that uh, point with your own mind. own mind. You know, there's a right. wonderful book out there which I strongly recommend called Lone Survivor. They've made a movie out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the seal that that story is about, did an incredibly amazing survival uh, escape and evasion after being the lone seal left, left alive after a major battle. And you read that book and you go, how could he possibly have done that? The answer is Hell
1: Week. Interesting. So when you go through the week, if you were to look at the distribution of people who go out and ring the bell, does most of that happen in the first day or two? I mean, how far do most people make it? And then the last day or two, are those usually the people who end up finishing, finishing through?
0: Good question. Most people quit in the first day or two. Um, it's scary. It's, um, uh, exhausting. And the men that quit, uh, one of the discoveries I made as a physician looking back it, are the ones that have other places they're willing to go. They've not had life experiences that prepared them for this level of trauma. And they walk away in that first day or two. Most, Um, men that succeed if they make it through Wednesday. So it starts on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. If you make it to Wednesday, you're going to make it to Saturday. And very few people uh, quit voluntarily after about the midpoint of hell. Week.
1: All right. So if we're looking at that point, we're dealing with a group of guys who are probably going to make it, but also are incredibly valuable to the military. There's only so many people like you who can do this. It's it's just a fact. We're now we're looking at injuries, and we're looking at other reasons that people could. I mean, presumably, according to the book, they can pull you out if they just feel that you're not giving up, but you're not going. You don't have what it takes to be a seal, or not what they're looking for. But but you can also get injured. I mean, you can get hypothermia. All sorts of things can happen. Let's talk about some of the the, the actual medical issues that are involved with these these trainees, and. At what point do they worry about injury prevention uh, as a factor of losing someone who could be a really valuable member of the teams?
0: Well, great question, because there's been some changes in the SEAL training approach to, to Hell Week that they both physically and psychologically They'll uh, strip you down naked almost every day to look for signs of cellulitis, cuts and cuts and scrapes, excessive bruising. You know, your toenails fall off with something called trench foot that was very common in Vietnam time with people with their feet always in wet, muddy environments. We see the same thing during Hell Week. You uh, become uh, very anemic uh, during this time. The... The iron levels are depleted just b- just from the physical strains that we put people through. You go through a a, a a period of speed, when I say speed, the heart rate is typically resting heart rates in the 120s, 140s. And that happens to anybody with prolonged sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you begin to hallucinate. Uh, usually by Wednesday night, Thursday, you see things that aren't there. You're operating totally on autopilot. So the physical strains are amazing. The, the mental stress is equally difficult. I remember being marched into a wall once as a, as a tune. We're all walking along, and the guy forgot to tell us to turn right, and so we all marched into a wall and just stood there, stepping up and down, waiting for somebody to tell us to, to halt, turn around and go somewhere else. It's like, okay, I guess this is what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so it, it's it's tough. And the hallucinations, almost everybody goes through that after, just from sleep deprivation. We had right. people seeing sea monsters, tidal waves, aircraft carriers bearing down on us, jumping over the side of the rubber boats we were paddling in. Uh, so physical and and uh, mental strain.
1: So who else is there besides the instructors? I, I know there's medics, there's physicians. No, there spot. are
0: medics. Uh, physicians are always uh, on hand at the Navy Training Center. Okay. The uh, but uh, the medics are the primary resource, uh, and they're with you from day one. They're they're also in an instructor status, but they're not SEALs. Uh, at always. They're, that's sort of an interesting history about the medical side of, of training. I'm, I point out in my book that the medics from my class, five of them, were not allowed to go through hell week because they needed them, and that's not true now. Uh, as a matter of fact, the most recent Navy SEAL Medal of Honor winner is a medic who uh, huh. was earned that award in Afghanistan during a rescue effort to save another a, a, a civilian doctor. And uh, he he was a shooter and he was a medic and he uh, took out the bad guys and rendered medical care and amazing story.
1: That's right. right. That's right. So are these medics right there in the boats with you or are they watching them with binoculars? I mean, how close are they? Because there's times where, I mean, you could fall off a boat and drown. I mean, it's how closely are they watching you through all this?
0: They have night vision scopes to watch you at night, uh, but you do lose track of people. The longest period of unsupervised uh, physical effort is when we paddle our boats from San Diego to the Mexican border where the med flats are, and then when we paddle back. Uh, There's also the last event of Hell Week is called an around-the-world event where you realize you're carrying these heavy rubber boats around on your head the entire week. But this last event is going from... uh, San Diego to North Island to Coronado, walking around, sort of on a uh, scavenger hunt. You're looking for clues to where your next point is, and it just—it's just a good way to use up that last night before the Saturday morning when Hell Week ends. And uh, you're not monitored during that time uh, closely. They—they—they uh, they, they let you go on your own, and they trust the officers and petty officers in charge to take care of their men. So it's, uh, it's, it's not it's, you're allowed to cheat a little bit, <laughs> uh, and, that, and that's a favorite thing. People will bury uh, Snicker bars in the sand dunes and <laughs> have the wives come out and bring them pizzas, uh, which we did during our class. They'll find a place where they can hide in, the, in a shadow and take a 10-minute nap, uh, and you're allowed to cheat. But if you get caught, you're, uh, you pay the price.
2: Right.
1: What's the average calorie intake for uh, a trainee? Oh, it's huge! It's huge. I,
0: I don't, I I want to say well over five thousand calories a day. The uh, the training now has four meals a day: breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then midnight rations, which without which I don't think the body uh, would be able to function. And that's one of the things they discovered. You you, there are military training such as ranger training where they uh, they do let you get to starvation states, but be, when you add the cold and the physical exertion and the lack of sleep that the uh, SEAL training is, without calories, the brain would just stop. And uh, I tell the story of one of my classmates who fell asleep during midnight rations, and by the morning, he was dysfunctional. He couldn't even, uh, we couldn't get him to chew his food. So he ended up being pulled, given IV fluids, and and chose to return and uh, continue, which was amazing to all of us. Wow. But, but he, was, he was a tiny guy. He weighed 137 pounds and huh. uh, wow. was, was all muscle. But when, uh, when you don't have the calories and the stored fat to keep you going, you're going to stop. Yeah.
2: Do they gauge things like weight during Hell Week and things like that? Do you, do you get – I know you get inspected, but do they also watch your weight and, and things
0: they do not, okay. um, they, our body temperatures in the winter classes particularly will drop into the high 80s and they've done right. studies on people to try to figure out what level of hypothermia is survivable. And later <laughs> in training, we send people to Kodiak, Alaska where there's always ice and snow and we take right. them through winter warfare training and body temperatures are closely monitored. Right. Uh, we. This is, you know, uh, this is a, a subject for later, later talk. But we have a swimmer delivery vehicle team, where men operate in these wet submersibles for four, five, six hours at a time, unable to really move and keep their body temperatures up. And we've done studies on them with rectal thermometers, you know, that are wireless to keep track of body temperatures. Mm-hmm. Even with wetsuits and dry suits, body temperatures drop. So it's it's a yeah. challenge.
2: Yeah. So the, the, uh, one of the interesting things to me as a physician is that we have all sorts of knowledge right now about, you know, what people can survive. Um, and, of course, it changes and increases every single day. Uh, the question is when they first started this training program or somebody first devised it and came up with the concept of Hell Week, they didn't probably know if people could survive this. They, they sort of figured, well, you know, we're going to push them until we find out. But but this was a big leap of faith on not only on your part for doing it, but on the part of the people uh, designing it and the people marshalling it to say, you know, we could very well lose every single one of these people because we may push them over the edge. Has that ever been sort of addressed in discussion or anything like that? Or
0: When I was researching Six Days of Impossible, I had to research Hell Week. And I discovered that Hell Week actually goes back to the 1940s, World War II, mm-hmm. in Fort Pierce, Florida, where the Navy SEAL Museum is now. That's where the scouts and raiders were be- we began their training. And there was a Hell Week concept that was begun then and continued to develop it, with men getting ready to go to war. So Hell Week, uh, the concept formed the underwater demolition teams. The training that was, was made official in 1943 included a Hell Week concept that has never, ever stopped. And they didn't think about it. It was actually, uh, Lieutenant Commander Kaufman, later Rear Admiral Kaufman, who's the father of the underwater demolition teams, who decided that we're going to have to put these men into stressful situations, you know, clearing beaches in the Pacific and clearing beaches at D-Day. Uh, we better make sure they're tough. And so it was his idea to to start a hell week without any real logic other than I need the 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 hardest, toughest men I can... Uh, I can find and that it never stopped so from that point.
2: There on. We go. Yeah. Put them through it and we'll see what happens. Well, I mean, it, it worked and it's a testimony to, to just how much humans can endure. And, and I guess that really proves that impossible is not impossible. It's amazing. <laughs> Do, um, and I'm probably jumping the gun here. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, obviously there's, there's longstanding changes that happen, um, to the physiology you talk about in your book. Do they give you, a a after hell week, is there a recovery period that they give you or do you just start right into training assuming you've made it through?
0: That's a good point. First phase of training is eight weeks long and hell week happens in that fourth week. So the following three weeks of first phase tend to be much less demanding physically uh, in order to get you to recover from that event. The, as I said, not only do we think you're anemic we know you're anemic your iron levels have dropped considerably right. Um, right. we tried to donate blood in our class as a as a nice thing to do after the hell week the week after and the, the red cross <laughs> rejected every single one of us because sure. we put they tested our blood and we didn't have any iron in it so it's right. not nice thanks for exactly. dropping by yeah. guys we can't take your blood right so uh, we the, the the following 3 weeks after hell week become more swimming, more running, more stretching, uh, much more positive rebuilding efforts more classroom time after that because the second phase is your dive phase now and they need you in good shape for that right water wets the yeah. Third phase is uh, land warfare and weapons and demolition training. so by the time you get there you're still in a you're still a training and you can be dropped at any point in time during the first six months of basic training. But uh, they do give you a recovery period. Okay.
2: Now the uh, former academician in me wonders: are, Do they use data from like the hell week recovery and things to determine what the what the best recovery period is? I presume, um, and without you necessarily revealing details, I presume a SEAL team will go off on a mission sure. and then will, we'll, depending on the the what happens in the mission, they may need a recovery period. Um, do they look at how we and say well I know we know it took them this long for full recovery from this so we can give them this long for the recovery? Is that part of the process?
0: Not really. The uh, There's been a number of studies done with tracking hypothermic effects uh, and we, we we do have a, uh, a reference manual now that tells the instructors how long they can keep people in cold water um, uh, but it's, and there's periodic, uh, medical studies that have been done, both physical and psychological, uh, efforts to determine why only 20 to 25% of the men who go through hell week finish it. And I think that's probably one of the key points that I, uh, researched and discovered in the book. It's not your physical ability or your, uh mental ability that gets you through hell week it's prior life experiences that have already tested you that gives you the ability to keep going Interesting. and that, that's a major discovery on my part that has <clears> never has <throat> never me. really been actively discussed and i've i've got some uh, navy seals in uh, training environments that are reading this with great interest trying to figure out how did we take dr adams discovery and apply it into the screening process
1: mm-hmm so I, I, I was going to say, I know I was watching one documentary about the Green Berets, and they did have psychiatrists or psychologists there during part of the, the training phase, just either taking notes or, or making observations. Is that a part of this at all, or is it still Hell Week is the only determining factor of who really can become a SEAL?
0: Well, psychologists in, uh, have been a part of Navy and Army uh, command staff for a number of years. It wasn't there in 1943 when the UDT teams were formed. It wasn't there in 1962 when the SEAL teams were formed. That's a much later uh, addition that has a lot to do with the rapid development of modern warfare. Mm -hmm. If we're going to put people into these situations and and ask them to do things that they can't talk about for 50 years, we better make sure that they're safe and capable uh, to operate in these environments in very, very dangerous and internationally sensitive situations. So they're there uh, and they're uh, available to evaluate people where the stress gets too much or an instructor might think, "I don't know if this is this is a guy that I want to follow into combat with." then the psychologist mm-hmm. will, will get involved. And and by the way, life stresses are are don't go away just because <laughs> you chose to go to Navy SEAL training. You right. still have to deal with uh, failed marriages and children uh, that want to do drugs. And there's another that's another role for the psychologist in the s- special operations units.
1: Yes, yeah, so since we brought that up, uh, um, you mentioned in your book. You guys took vitamins, and I'm assuming this is just basically GNC-level stuff, you know, multivitamins and, you know, supplements. But there have been, I mean, just like Olympic athletes or professional athletes, there's always the temptation to look at performance enhancers. Do they test for these during training? Um, You know, have people ever – I do believe there's one instance where someone was taking something and led to, you know, a medical issue. But tell us more about that.
0: Well, as we mentioned earlier, there was a death during Hell Week. Uh, It was congestive heart failure death from an officer who was using ephedrine and creatine to improve his performance, or so he thought. But uh, as I discovered later in Delta Force, when we, the same thing was happening, Fort Bragg was losing four or five soldiers a year to hyperthermic deaths wow. from the use of these supplements, because right. the, these creatine and ephedrine in combination is extremely dangerous and was quite popular with the bodybuilding world. But yeah. when, you, when you go for a run on, a, on an average humid day and you can't sweat because of these uh, supplements, your body temperature will suddenly shoot to 108, 109, and die, and you're unrecoverable. That's what ex- that didn't happen to our uh, officer that died during SEAL training in the 90s. It uh, it caused a congestive heart failure because you can't sweat, and your cells retain water, which mm-hmm. is what your lung does and what your heart does, and Interesting, I was at Delta Force at the time when this happened, and I heard about it, happened to be scheduled to go to San Diego to talk about the dangers of these, these drugs to the SEALs. And uh, the admiral there was Admiral Eric Olson, who later went on to be our first four-star Navy SEAL, and he was my classmate at the Naval Academy. He invited me over for dinner, and I said, Hey, Eric, I, I got to tell you, I'm pretty sure I know what killed your, your, your boy. And he said, well, they did an autopsy, Bob, and, and they don't know. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Was he coughing up red, frothy blood, and uh, did you find creatine in his locker? And his, his eyes went okay. wide, and he says, yeah, both. How did you know? I said, because we're seeing that at Fort Bragg from people using these supplements. So his next question to me was, well, I'm the admiral in charge. What do I do? And, I, and I, I'm very proud to say that the, my recommendation was enacted immediately. I said, Admiral, you need to ban these uh, substances from SEAL training. And to this day, because of his declaration uh, and prohibition, you may not ever leave the country and go down to to Mexico or you'll be released from training because that's where you can buy illegal things, get really testosterone injections or mm. drink, drink cobra venom or whatever you think is going to make <laughs> you better. And, and are they doing
1: blood and urine tests during training as well to just ensure that? The-
0: they, they do not do blood and urine tests, but they do, uh, daily inspections of okay. the lockers. I mean, you're very closely sure. monitored and, uh, they do, they, they inspect the lockers and you're allowed one, uh, motion and one multivitamin if you request it during training. That's wow. it.
2: Wow. That's, that's fascinating.
1: It really is. So so just to recap here, I mean, we, you know, we know, there, uh, you know the iron levels are depleted. What kind of research is usually being done here? Is it every class that comes through? Are there just studies that are ongoing? You know, How much is monitored throughout the process? Because I, th- I would imagine that the military does want to continue to refine these programs. The better they can make them, the better they're going to be at identifying people and training people who, who do this kind of elite work. I mean, what kind of research is ongoing right now?
0: Well, I'll be honest, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm an old SEAL, not a young SEAL, and and although I know there are ongoing medical studies and there's a permanent staff of medical officers, psychologists, psychiatrists, I can't particular I can't address what they're currently doing. I, I try to keep track of uh, the physicians that used to be SEALs, and there's a few of us out there, uh, one of which is Frank Butler, who's been very involved in the special operations research and has rewritten the guidelines for combat trauma training. And when I was with Delta Force, uh, I, I, we rewrote, we, we tested some of the advanced um, combat-related uh, medical care that we can give. But I don't know that I could I could accurately answer that particular question okay
1: so tell us about the very end of hell week it was almost anticlimactic the way i saw it in the book it wasn't it was kind of unexpected tell us about the last day for you
0: well for me it was different uh because i was one of the six men that was released before that round the world event happened uh you're told all during hell week that one boat crew will uh Will be awarded an early release from Hell Week. So we happened to be that boat crew. Um, I love I love telling the story that boat crews are chosen chosen by height, and <laughs> um, and I knew that. And so when they lined us all up by height, and I knew there were seven men in a boat crew, um, I was probably the eighth or ninth tallest person in my class. But <laughs> I ran I ran up forward in the line and stood in position number seven so that the guys with me were the biggest, strongest guys, and the uh, instructors saw me do it, but didn't stop me, and (laughs) I ended ended up with the biggest, toughest guys, and our boat crew uh, lost some of those men during Hell Week, but when it was all over, I got secured at midnight, uh, well, no, it was about 2 a.m., before our official release the following morning, about 7 a.m., So, but I tell the story of when they let us go, we all went up to the barracks. Were ordered to not leave it. There was some food there for us, and people to take our dirty, nasty, stimp- smelly clothes and clean them. And we were told to shower and go to bed. But we had been so cold for so long that the sh- showers were excruciatingly, you know, hot. But we so we would turn on all the spigots high and stand in the steam and you know, try to let our body temperatures come back and let the shivering come back because you'd almost suppressed the ability to shiver during this period of extreme cold. The physiologic, the medical fascinating effect was uh, all of our body temperatures set points had been, had been reset. And this is something that I've talked to of people, that go, particularly the winter classes. We got into bed and to, as soon as we fell asleep, the body started sweating, trying to decrease our body temperatures back to what they thought it was supposed to be. And so we all climbed out of bed at about you know, two hours into our first, night of, first hours of sleep, soaking wet and come in and wash off and look around going, what happened? Why is this happening huh. to me? Interestingly, the uh, involuntary sweating lasted for many months. For a number of people, women would, wives would come in and go, you know, I hate you. My bed has to have plastic sheets on it now (laughs) because the the mattress was getting soaked. And when I researched this, I discovered that that was true of the Korean War survivors of the Chosin Reservoir. Mm -hmm. They had had all suffered severe hypothermia. Many of them froze to death. But for the rest of our lives, and even today, when I go for a run, I sweat more than the guy running right now. About that. Interesting. the hypothalamus has reset its set point
1: to a right. lower level. So you wow. literally went and never got any that. sleep Amazing. this whole time. How how long did you sleep when you first got the green light to do it?
0: Not very much. You, again, you kept waking. <laughs> you kept waking up, soaking, soaking wet. Uh, and the following weeks, you didn't uh, do much. You know, catch up sleep because your body it had to uh, it had to. Unspeed itself. Your heart rate, resting heart rate, had to come back to normal. Your uh, you had to really work hard on nutrition. But the, I remember the following week end. You know, it ends on a Saturday morning. Saturday and Sunday, you'd wake up going, "Well, the sun's up. I'm going to get up, and you know, I'm going to." Try to deal with the aches and pains which were there. A lot of us had trench foot, so toenails had fallen off or turned to black, and
2: mm.
0: there was edema in the lower extremities that you had to walk off. Um, but it's um, it's difficult to sleep twelve hours uh, after the body's been through this speed uh, period. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of recovery sleep.
1: Amazing. Mm. Hey, you think you just sleep for a whole week straight, but uh, your body just won't let you. That's unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Uh, How about the eating? I mean, they they provide food, but uh, were you able to eat a full meal at that point, or did that also have to be sort of eased in?
0: The the quantity of foods that we ate during training was absolutely astounding to me. Mm -hmm. We would put – the midnight rations I I got a big kick out of because there would be Navy – Uh, mess specialists there serving you food and you'd come in covered with mud and grain sand and wet and boot squishing and they'd be putting as much food as they could on your plates looking at you with both amazement and sympathy and you know you'd have three three uh pepsis and a hot chocolate and you know you'd be sticking your fingers in the hot chocolate try to warm them up and drinking it sand and all and you'd Mm. put you'd eat as much food as you possibly could hold to the point where the food was backed up in your esophagus and you're swallowing to keep it there and then an hour later if you haven't thrown up some of it uh you'd be starving again i want more if i want more food you know it was it was amazing to me how much food we would eat and that that continued uh for for some weeks after you know training doesn't get easier right after after hell week it's still training and so you eat as much as you possibly can every time you eat
1: Interesting. So moving into training, um, I didn't know until I was actually talking to another former Navy SEAL yesterday. I was, I was preparing for the interview today, and he was telling me how rigorous the academics are. I mean, there's so much that you have to learn. Uh, give us an idea of some of the areas you were focused on besides just the physical fitness.
0: Well, the demolition uh, work, The uh, in order to learn weapons and, and uh diving physiology, you have to learn all about what's going to happen to you in both uh, scuba and in mixed gas and in pure oxygen rebreathing. And there's a fair amount of math and physics that uh, you're required to do. The uh, the challenges are really difficult for people, particularly the enlisted men that have come right out of high school, some of which, you know, weren't the great, greatest acad- academicians. They went through a uh, they went through their time uh, and their challenges in life, where school wasn't their favorite part. Hmm. I had a, I had seventeen men finish Hell Week in my class, but only eleven ended up graduating, and we lost a few of those seventeen that had made it through Hell Week to academics. They couldn't pass the the diving physiology tests. But it's wow. it, it's a challenge. Yeah.
1: So what happens next? I mean, how long is the training and then when are you assigned to a team and where, where does your career begin after the training?
0: Well, the basic training, what we call BUDS, basic underwater demolition SEAL training is 26 weeks, six months long. And when you graduate from that, you're given a graduation certificate, but you can't put on the Budweiser insignia, which is what all SEALs you know, aspire to is that big gold Uh, Eagle holding a musket and a a trident, Uh, that comes a year later. It used to be six months later, but now you'll remain at the BUDS training area as a graduate of basic BUDS, and you will go through an additional year of demolition, advanced uh, parachuting, free fall and static line, weapons demolition, survival, escape resistance and evasion schools, jungle warfare, winter warfare, and the list just goes on and on. It takes an entire year and a half of BUDS plus one year of training before you are able to stand in formation and put that uh, SEAL insignia on your uniform. That's when you're assigned to a SEAL team. And when you get there, you're assigned to a platoon as an officer or an enlisted man. And you'll go through an additional two to six months of platoon training before you deploy your first combat mission.
1: Wow. Give us an idea of where you were, I mean, there may be obviously some things you can't talk about, but um, how much ongoing training was there? Maintenance of skills? I mean, what what is a, I hate to say a typical day, there's probably not a typical day for being a Navy SEAL, but give us a day to, you know, have, help us understand what your job was like.
0: What I, when people ask me about what it was like to be a Navy SEAL, um, I will tell them without hesitation that it's the most enjoyable job I ever had and ever will have. I used to literally... Uh, regret going to sleep because I had to sleep eight hours before I could get up and do it again. <laughs> and uh, it, it it was that much fun because how many jobs are there where you know you get to work out for two hours every morning as part of your job, and then you go off and you go scuba diving or repelling or paddling or or uh, shooting uh, different types of weapons, and, and there were so much so many skill sets that you had to maintain that it was difficult to find enough time in a day to do it all. So uh, from that standpoint, it, it was uh, actually the best job I've ever loved, and uh, the demands were self-imposed once you're once you're there. You, everybody tries to push themselves uh, to be as good as they possibly can be. The you know when I later went into the army, I had made commander in the navy. And the only time I wore my commander's uniform was when I got sworn into the army as a second Lieutenant and, and, the, and the, and the Admiral who, who was a Navy Admiral who swore, swore me into that military health profession scholarship program said, you know, I always congratulate people when I bring them into these scholarship programs, but I just turned a Navy commander into an army second Lieutenant. And I just can't bring myself to
1: congratulate
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> totally understand Admiral, but, uh, but that that led me into a, a marvelous Army experience and uh, where as a doctor and of course, as you all know, residency training is its own, has its own demands. And uh, I did my my medical school at Wake Forest University, three year residency at Madigan Army Medical Center in Washington State mm-hmm. uh, was first assignment was back to Fort Bragg. and. The oh, by the way, to that story is 45 days after I arrived on Fort Bragg, having just been recertified in static line and freefall parachuting because my Navy SEAL buddies there were taking care of the old dock that had arrived. <laughs> uh, I, I received orders to go into lockdown to uh, be the the doctor on aircraft number one to invade wow. Haiti. And, oh, uh, wow. and I launched with 3,582nd airborne okay. paratroopers only having been a doctor for 45 days, you know, as
1: a Okay, attending. we, we got to come right uh-huh. back to that because that's, but I got to ask you something before we get there because I think we skipped over something. Sure. What made you want to become a doctor? Where did that come from?
0: Oh, that's excellent. Um, I had, at the Naval Academy, been um, an average student, but I got an A-plus in biology and I loved biology. And when I would get in trouble, which I was very good at at the Naval Academy, um, one one or two times I had to uh, I had to go back on what is what it was I really enjoyed. And my biology professor was always there, going, "If you ever want to do something in the world of biology, you let me know because you're one of my favorite students." Mm. So, what happened was uh, Vietnam and the post-Vietnam military became very very poor it was shrinking uh similar to what happened during obama's uh, reign Uh, the military was money was cut and um, i decided to get out of the active seals go into the reserves and and do other things that's when i went back to school got my mba stayed active in the in the what's called a reserve seal team where i just you know we train on weekends and uh and two weeks every year. But as soon as I left active, the SEAL teams and went into the civilian world, I went, "Uh uh-oh, I've made a big mistake. I want to go back and do what I was doing because the civilian world wasn't as much fun as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. So I immediately went back to the uh, Navy and said, hey, look, um, I might have misjudged how much I was enjoying being a SEAL. Can I come back on active duty? And they said, no, you can't. And um, we're drawing down the military. We're cutting back on our seals and underwater demolition teams. We don't need you. Stay in the reserves and we'll call you if there's a war. I went, (laughs) all right, fine. So I I got my MBA instead and went to work uh, working in for the Navy and doing some special operations research stuff and disliked it immensely. So I went, I went to my wife one day and I said, I got to do something else. And the only thing that I ever loved was biology. And I think maybe even though I'm 30 years old, I want to go to medical school so that it it was it was just a logical choice trying to find something that was as much fun as being a Navy SEAL.
1: How about that? So is it? (laughs) I guess that would be the question. And was
2: it? Yeah. (laughs) Did you you find medical? I mean, it's certainly a challenge, much different kind of challenge. Was it uh, fun in its own way? uh, Give you that kind of a of a of a buzz the way being a Navy SEAL did
0: yeah it did actually I I was I was very surprised by how much I enjoyed medical school I mean I I I, I, people don't think I'm serious when I tell them I went to medical school to learn what they teach in medical school I didn't Mm -hmm. go there to become a doctor I was in my third year of medical school when it suddenly hit me that, hey, you know, when I'm done with this, they're going to call me doctor. It was, it was like, oh, that comes with some responsibilities that I hadn't thought of. And even now, even today, as I'm practicing in in, in the town of Knightdale, North Carolina, uh, people always comment that I'm the smiley doctor because I'm always <laughs> smiling. I love what I do. Still, it still motivates me every day to get up and help other people and, and, and be part of their lives and be a voyeur on the world around us. Uh, medicine has always fascinated me. And, uh, and I'll brag that I've won more Best Doctor Awards than anybody in the uh, North Carolina area, which are patient nominated awards because they know I love what I do.
1: Well, when you were back in medical school, did most of your classmates know about your background and they know who you were?
0: They did, but they didn't know okay. what it meant. Uh, medical school, as as you both know, is is challenging uh, in its un- in its own way, and there everybody's more focused on themselves. But um, I was the oldest member of my class. I didn't go to medical school till I was thirty six years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it took me almost five years to go back to school, do all my prerequisites, apply to medical school, which is a year long process in a, of its own, and so I was kind of the the old man of the class and wake forest university had begun rec- recruiting older students because they discovered that people who make that choice later in life do it because it's what they really want to do. And they end up being better doctors. As That's very true.
1: One of our earlier guests, Suzanne Watson, she's probably the oldest part of that uh, group there. She went back to wake forest at 50 years old. We interviewed her. Oh my yeah, Amazing, amazing person. But um, she talked about some of the challenges early on dealing with, some kids younger than her kids, you know, who were her classmates, but um, in a way, she was more of an inspiration for them because she showed just how much she loved medicine that she had waited all that time and still pursued her dream. And uh, I'm just thinking about if I was one of your classmates though, sitting next to a former navy seal, <laughs> I don't know, it might have been more intimidating than anything. <laughs>
0: Did, I, I, did don't, f- I don't think that was ever the case. The, most people, did, just like we're exploring today, most people don't know what it means to be an AV SEAL. And again, this was the 1990s when I went through medical school, and the seals had not become as That's known. True. These there were no books. There were no books right. written
1: back then. That's, That's true. Well, so you so you finish yeah. up. did, oh, did you?
2: I'm sorry. Um, did you find, uh, any frustration? I mean, being in a Navy SEAL, you're surrounded by people who are just as motivated as you were. Did you find frustration in the fact because, uh, medical school classes, some people, you know, I love this. I'm going to work, I'm going to work all the time. And some people were like, yeah, it's just school. I'd rather be kicking around. And, um, uh, did, was that a problem just in terms of, of the people you're working with and the people who surrounded you?
0: No, I don't think so. Um, medical school is a 24 hour a day job and you you sleep when you can you eat when you can but uh, it's 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 challenging enough that I don't feel like I had to help anybody else and they didn't have to help me we just sort of work together towards that common goal of mm-hmm. you know all right there's your MD go on and 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 plan the rest of your life but it's It was its own challenge. I will I will tell you, I wish I had done it younger because going through internship and, you know, on call every other night was not much fun
1: at 40 years old. That's for sure. Well, you knew how to deal without sleep. That's for sure. Yes. (laughs) You had that going for you. All right. Now we're going to jump back because I interrupted you. So you are just starting with the Army 45 days in and you're going to Haiti. Let's take us back there.
0: Well, very few people know this bit of military history, but uh, when the eighty second airborne was ordered to invade Haiti, it was uh, it was because the, there was a military uh, takeover expected regime change was the the United States intent, and General Colin Powell was actually in Haiti on the day we launched to invade. And when we were two hours out, and this is a fascinating story that's out there if you want to find it, Colin Powell pulled the president of Haiti aside and said, I just need to let you know that two hours ago, the 82nd Airborne launched, and when they get here two hours from now, um, you're probably gonna die. Unless you want to allow us to take you out of here, hand over the presidency to a successor, and we will peacefully reorganize this country and uh, he was wise enough to say, I don't think I'm going to fight this fight, and he he accepted the United States offer, and we received an order we're all locked and loaded. and We're all ready to go to war to turn those 64 jump aircraft with 3,500 men around and bring them back to Fort Bragg. So we never did jump out of that airplane uh, onto Fort Bragg, which I, as a doctor, I'm on Haiti,
1: um,
0: <laughs> I'm very grateful for because I already knew in my 60-pound medical pack that I didn't have enough chest tubes and splints just to handle the jump injuries that would have happened if we'd have made that assault happen.
1: Right. right. Wow. So. So, you're mm-hmm. in the Army now. Um, this kind of it's, it's it's not a big question, but I was just kind of curious. Could you wear the Budweiser insignia on an Army uniform, or is it only for Navy?
0: No, it's a good question. I get that asked a lot. Um, the Army allows you to wear any major uh, service insignia on an Army uniform. So Navy and Air Force qualification badges are are also allowed. Um, the Navy does the same thing, and the Air Force does the same thing. If you were a, a an Air Force pilot, in the Navy, uh, which does happen periodically, you could still wear that badge, major qualification badge on a uniform. And the medals that you earn, uh, the Army and the Navy have different ribbons that they award. Even the Medal of Honor looks different if you're an Army Medal of Honor versus right. a Navy Medal of Honor. Hmm. And you, you would wear the one that is specific to that gotcha. surface. to gotcha. that service. but <laughs> there are no gold Army badges. They're all silver. And so when I put on a dress uniform and put that big old gold uh, seal insignia on it, it always got a lot but of questions. It
1: did. <laughs> what the heck is that? <laughs> so people knew your background. Well, they knew who you were. Yeah, it was a good story, at least. So,
0: yeah. Well, I had, a, I had a number of people that would, uh, particularly young enlisted men that had never seen a seal insignia, and they'd come up and go to me, sir, sir what is that? And how do I get one? It's really, <laughs> it's really cool looking. <laughs> And I said, well, you can't do it in the Army, son.
1: <laughs> so the Army has their elite units, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. Um, give us a quick, just an overview. I mean, are is Delta more geared towards special types of assignments as opposed to the Navy SEALs, Marine Force recon? I mean, is there a division of labor there? What's, what are the differences, if there are uh, many?
0: Well, let me, answer, let me answer that question by telling you how the SEAL team in Delta are organized. When I went through training, there was one SEAL team on each coast and two underwater demolition teams. Uh, in, in 83, the UDT teams were renamed SEAL teams because we were all doing the same thing. So there were three SEAL teams on each coast in 83. Now there are four SEAL teams on each coast. We haven't grown that much and a SEAL Team still is only about 100, 120 operators. So it's a teeny tiny military organization. You mm-hmm. know, just to put that in perspective, the 82nd Airborne Division has three brigades of 6,000 men each. Wow. So, you know, on a SEAL Team, there's what, 500 on each coast and they're deployed around the world. But people talk about Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 um, Delta Force pulled Saddam Hussein out of his hole, and SEAL Team Six pulled Osama bin Laden out of his hiding place. And there are, you know, news famous uh, players, but they do not fall under the Navy SEALs chain of command. COMNAV Spec War Group, the commander of the East and West Coast SEALs, take care of the SEAL Teams One, Three, Five, and Seven on the West Coast, and SEAL Teams Two, Four, Eight, and Ten on the east coast you notice i skipped over 6 because seal team 6 and delta force fall under the joint special operations command uh that is the one that takes these specialized missions if we're going to do a, a hostage rescue or we're going to do a um takedown of an aircraft that has been ta- been been terrorist taken over that's going to those jobs are going to go to the Joint Special Operations Command, and they're going to go to either SEAL Team Six or Delta Force and, and their support network. So it's a it's a fascinating organization. SEAL teams still do those all of those missions, but they're they're spread all around the world. Uh, we've, nice got, we've got SEAL operators in many, many countries all around the world. Hmm. But but the newsworthy oh my goodness, we're going to go find Saddam Hussein again. Those go to, the, to a, a nev- another tier level of what are called tier one units.
1: So these tier one units, we know a few things that we've heard in the news, but there's probably a great deal we don't know. And when you were in the Army, um, you were, I have to be careful how I say this because we were, we were talking about this before, but you had some involvement with them. Um, maybe explain what you're allowed to explain about that. And these guys get injured just like anybody else, but um, it's a little different process for how they're treated. Give us an idea of what you you were doing there.
0: Well, my job at Delta Force, and I, I, I'm allowed to say that now that I'm not assigned to Delta Force anymore. Uh, Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 members literally don't exist in the military system. They drop out of sight, their mm-hmm. records are locked up somewhere, and you know they grow beards and long hair and look like civilians many times. Uh, and that was true even as a doctor, non-operating. My job was to be the command surgeon at Delta Force, which was my job title, uh, and I'm a family practice physician, so not a surgeon. but. I would deploy with them and my medics. My job was primarily to keep the medics trained up to uh, the highest level they possibly could be. And we did uh, training that is classified. That We don't need the bad guys to know what we're capable of, even in the medical support world. And I'm, I'm, I'm to this day, very close contact with the medics that i trained some of which have gone on to be doctors themselves because we trained them to be able to operate in four deployed areas independently without a physician sure. and pe- people used to ask me well doc why aren't you you know on target today i said because i have medics that are on target and if something really bad happens i need to be here where i have the resources to help them do their job you know i yeah. and you know, my wartime experience in the army was in Iraq, and when bad things happened, I sent my medics forward and st- stood back with my docs to deal with the, the folks they would bring home, yeah. and that's that's the best way it works. S-
2: Speaking of the training, and this is d- doubling way back, um, you know, you had the medics. You said that the medics often, uh, when you were there, were not Navy SEALs. Did they train the SEALs on sort of um, self treatment did they train them how to deal with an injury how to how to do sort of field type um, uh, care so that they you wouldn't need to worry about having a medical staff on any of these missions
0: excellent question they did do that initially in the 70s 80s and 90s but as the joint special operation the tier one units happened and more and more we had men in countries that didn't have a u.s or, or uh ally support, we had to start training our medics and our soldiers to provide care. And you know, I think I'm I'm v- very proud of the fact that uh, I was one of the initial docs tasked with that, making my medics good, but also making the men that they took care of good. So I trained the medics to train the soldiers in basic man Care, take care of your soldier, and they, you know they now make uniforms with tourniquets sewn into right. the arms and legs, so that if there's an injury, you can you can pull your own tourniquet and save your own life. Uh, I one one very specific event when I was with the army, Delta Force guys, the command surgeon came to me after this happened say, "Doc, thanks so much for training all of us because." We had a, an event where a Friendly Fire dropped a 600-pound bomb on some Delta Force operators. Wow. And, and the casualties, the most serious casualties, were actually the medics. And so the men who had been trained by the medics in man care saved the lives of the medics. Wow. Wow. And he came to me and said, Doc, I, I got to thank you for what you did. You trained the medics to train us, and we saved their lives. Wow.
1: Amazing. That's a Wow. That's a wow. That is definitely a wow. So last night we were doing a little quick audio check, Bob, and we were talking about some stories about some of these guys. I mean, their threshold for pain and and recovery is a little different than probably the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Tell us a quick story. One of the two we were talking about last night when these patients showed up at your door.
0: All right. My favorite one that I mentioned yesterday was uh, one of my operators uh, was doing a training exercise where you use grenades called flashbangs, which is high intensity heat and explosion without the fragmentation. And he went to pull the pin on the uh, flashbang, it went off in his hand, premature detonation, mm-hmm. and blew his fingers off, essentially. Um, and I get the call, Eagle Down, and, which is our code for your Doc, I need you in the emergency room now if somebody's been injured or killed. And I show up in the emergency room, and the nurse grabs me and says, who is this guy? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? Said, no, he's over there telling us about what happened to his hand and his four fingers are missing and his, you know, his skin is macerated and he's not yelled at or cried or anything. He's, and I said, oh, well, you got to understand these guys are made of different stuff. And I walk over to the table and literally in a, in a, in a normal tone of voice, he goes, hey, doc. Okay, here's what happened: the premature detonation. You know, I don't. You know, you think we can save this hand? And I'm looking at him, going, "You're burned. You're macerated. Your bones are 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 sticking out, and you're talking to me about it." Wow. So, You know, th- that is, he. You know, he knew it happened. Uh, a similar uh, event happened on the very first day I showed up in training at Delta. There was a training event that happened. Where a uh, a door breaching of uh, charge went off by accident because a flashbang grenade had had connected the circuit on the on the blast to a wooden door, and it exploded in this guy's face and coated him from head to groin with splinters. Oh. and when i when I ran down there, first day I was there, first day. To see the guy, the medics had already gotten his his uh, clothes opened up, and they're saying, "Look, we got you know splinters in his testicles. We got splinters in his face. You know, uh, the eyes are both working. I, you know, gave me his vital signs. And I go, oh, okay. And I said, let's transport, and we get him to the clinic. And I said, start cleaning him up. And the guy looks at me, goes, No, doc, not yet. They got to take pictures first. <laughs> go, what? I need my picture taken of the blood and the gore because that's going to go on the platoon wall (laughs) where all the other pictures of people like me. Oh, man. Oh,
2: wow. And I look at him going,
0: seriously? Who is this guy?
2: Yeah, quite quite different than your practice today, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Well, with that said, Bob, we have gone over time quite a bit, which I don't regret at all because we're having a great time. I think this this has been a lot of fun, but we do have to – let you get back and we appreciate the time, but let me ask you just to uh, tell us a little bit about your practice today, what you're doing. And I got to know, like before you get into clinic this, uh, in the morning, what's your morning root, uh, workout routine look like? Cause I bet it's different than mine. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I work out during my lunch break. I've a, I'm a family physician in Nightdale, North Carolina in a practice that I um, took over uh, 10, 12 years ago and uh, got a, I'm a very busy doctor, just because over the years, a lot of folks have found their way to me. But uh, I schedule an hour and a half lunch break in my day so that I can uh, go across the street to the pool and I swim to work out. And uh, I do a, I do a swim workout and take a steam bath, get all the germs off me and turn around, and come back, oftentimes with a red face to start my <laughs> afternoon. But that's my my chosen workout. I've got one bad knee that takes my running away from me. I did <laughs> triathlons for many, many years, but uh, now it's just biking and swimming as my, as my chosen workout.
1: And do most of your patients know about your background? Is that something that comes up in conversation or?
0: The uh, most of them do know that, that I was, well, they all know I'm prior military and I've got a couple pictures on the walls that uh, some of them take, take a time to look at that indicates a military background. But um, it's not something that, that we often talk about. Since my book came out, a number of them have bought it and read it and come back to say, oh, my goodness, you did what? <laughs> so so I am, I'm autographing an awful lot of books these days.
1: That's great. Well, with that said, um, your book is uh, Six Days of Impossible. And just tell everybody quickly, Bob, where they can find your book and find more about you online.
0: Well, it's at the Navy Seal Museum in Florida. It's uh, here in the local bookstores of Raleigh, uh, but it's as it's a self-published book right now, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and most of your online book retailers will get it to you if you need it.
1: Including Kindle, which is the way I read it. So Yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you. But with that said, uh, Dr. Robert Adams, uh, it's just been a great pleasure having you. And I know you're starting the early work of a next book, so I'm going to ask you all ready to come back on again because... We have a lot more to talk about, and we would love to have you back on to join us.
0: Happy to do it. Thank you for your time.
2: Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.